our Lord. Amen. Lord, I pray that as uh, I speak this morning, the words that come from my mouth might make sense because they are inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I was driving in my car with an old friend, and somehow the topic of karma came up. I can't remember in what context this word appeared in our conversation, but I do remember his reaction when I instinctively said, I don't believe in karma. He seemed genuinely shocked. Now, if I was on my A-game, I would have added the words, because grace is way better than karma, and then launched into an hour-long apologetic on the doctrine of grace. But I didn't. And in retrospect, I think I was shocked that he was shocked that I, as a Christian, as a minister in the church, did not believe in karma. It's been a popular thing to say uh, lately that we live in a Christian country. And I know we're not the only country that uses this expression. A Western world ethic is based on democracy, justice and fairness. Sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? The thing is, when you think about it, I wonder whether this Western ethic has much more in common with karma than it does with grace. Before I go too much further, let me define what I mean by karma so that we're all on the same page. Karma has its origins in Hinduism and Buddhism, and it's often associated with reincarnation which is why I think many Christians will instinctively say, oh, we don't believe in karma. As Jesus followers, we believe in resurrection, not reincarnation. But as a principle, karma is about cause and effect, where intent and actions of an individual, the cause, influences the future happiness of that individual, the effect. Good intent and good deeds contribute to good karma and future happiness, while bad intent and bad deeds contribute to bad karma and future suffering. In other words, if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. Good people suffering is explained by the notion that your reward will be in your next reincarnated life or that they obviously did something really bad before they were good. As a principle, our Western sensibilities don't seem to have too much a problem with this concept. If you are good, you deserve to be acknowledged and rewarded. If you're bad, you deserve to be held accountable and punished. Our education, justice, and pretty much every organisational system in our culture models this type of principle. Even within the church, we can 
be seeming to support this ideal, linking our personal blessings with our behaviour and acts of faith. I've heard many preachers suggest that if you do good, you get blessed. If you do bad, you get on your knees. Bad things happen. Well, your faith is not strong enough. You didn't really repent. Or God is testing you. Or even God is punishing you. My perspective is that that is dodgy theology. And hopefully today we'll understand why. The words of Jesus can be used to support this type of thinking as well. I'm sure you may be familiar with this famous passage from Matthew's Gospel, which has become known as the Christian version of the Golden Rule. We like to say it in the old King James's version, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The problem is we leave out the last part of this passage. For this is the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is code that Jesus uses for the old covenant. This is how the people of Israel were supposed to live before Jesus and it's recorded in the Old Testament. And testament just means commandment or covenant. We do need to understand the Old Testament covenant. It's still very important. We need to understand how and why it was formed. And as Christians, it still is very important to us. But it can never be at the expense of understanding and applying the new covenant, which is summarised by John's Gospel in this command. I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in other words, as a follower of Jesus, our golden rule should really be do unto others as Christ has done for you. I want you to think about for a moment what our world would be like or what our country would be like and how it would be different if we were really a Christian country and this is the principle that our country was formed on. Do unto others as Christ has done for you. For St Paul, it's the only Christian principle that matters. Everything else that Paul has been talking about flows from and out of this. A foundational understanding of grace and resurrection. And we're going to, for the next few weeks, wrestle with this idea. Paul's been writing 15 chapters worth of information, but most scholars believe that chapter 15 is where it's all at and what it's all about. There's one more chapter, but that's a, just a thanks for reading. See you later. I'll be writing to you again because you're so dysfunctional. I'll write back again soon. <laughs> Paul's leading up to this final point. 
He's got two questions for them. Do you believe in the resurrection? And if you do, do you live like you do? Now, these two questions may be questions that you have asked of yourself. And you've got a defined answer. They may be questions that you are still asking and you're still trying to work out the answer. Or they may be questions that you've never asked. But regardless of where you are personally, at the heart of the Christian gospel is the claim that is scandalous to some, ludicrous to others, but for those who believe, it brings life and it brings hope. And that is the ancient God of Israel raised Jesus, a first century Jew, from the dead for a purpose. As we seek to discover what that means for us, I pray that we will understand the intrinsic link between resurrection and grace. There's no grace without resurrection and there's no resurrection without grace. In the Corinthian church, the Corinthians had been tailoring uh, their belief system to fit in with the rest of society who didn't believe in Jesus. The Corinthian society had, like ours, a defined system of punishment and reward. But Paul is telling them as a church trying to link too closely with the system of the culture was causing division amongst them. He wants them to get back to resurrection and grace. We live in a time when the old ways of doing church is struggling to communicate faith effectively, especially to younger generations. The old answers don't seem to work anymore. In fact, in many cases, the old questions aren't even being asked anymore. When I lived in Newcastle, I used to drive by a billboard on a regular occasion that was very matter-of-fact and to the point. It read, Jesus is the answer. You might, might have seen billboards like that. They're scattered all over the world. But I, I did come across a cheeky reply that made me stop and think to this billboard. And that reply was, Jesus is the answer to a question that I have never asked. This is the world that we find ourselves living in. So just expecting that because we're in a great location next to a shopping centre, that just because we think we have the answers, that people will just come and ask us what they are. This way of doing church is not effective. And it's a big struggle for us Anglicans because what we are really good at is placing a building right in the middle of a, of a city or a town and expecting everybody to come to us. But I do believe that there is a great opportunity for us to get back to basics, to do unto others as Christ has done for you. And this is really the essence of our vision to be known for our relationships. And just imagine for a while what sort of church 
would be and what sort of influence would it have if it was doing unto others what Christ had done for it. There's a big but in all of this. What if you don't or can't find yourself believing in the resurrection? I get a real sense that this was the main issue with the Corinthian church. Some did and some didn't. And this is what Paul was writing to them about. It still is a major stumbling block for those outside of the church. And it is a stumbling block for many within it. There is an argument that is growing voice that we should look at the resurrection of Jesus as a metaphor. Now, there's many parts of the Bible that I I believe are metaphorical and should be read that way. But this argument also says that we should look that Jesus' resurrection is, is really just Jesus rising in the hearts of the disciples. And our part in that resurrection is sort of like if, if a friend or a family member has passed away, they don't literally rise from the dead, but when we think of them or remember them and honour their legacy, that's eternal life. I did another funeral on Friday and each time I do a funeral I get an undeniable picture of the truth that love does not end when a person dies and I often call this a glimpse of eternal life but I might stop doing that (laughs) because if that's all it is I'm, I'm not sure about you but I don't actually think that that's good news if that's all it is. I'm not sure if there's much hope in that. There's certainly not hope for everyone. What if you were to die with nobody around you, no one to love you? What of those people who are long forgotten? What of the undeniable reality that at some point in human history, no one will have any idea who Stuart Perry was what he did, who he loved, and who he was loved by. For me, unless there is real, bodily, Jesus actually coming back from the dead, Thomas standing in front of him, looking at his hands and his side, offering to touch them. We don't know whether he did or he didn't. Unless he's eating fish on the beach with his friends, unless he's been seen by the 500 people that Paul says, unless he's appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus. Unless this is true, unless our part of it is true as well, that you and me as believers of Jesus will receive eternal life, that we will be raised. I'm not sure how that's going to work. It's really complicated, so I'm leaving that bit to God. Unless that type of resurrection is real. I really don't see hope. Paul believed in this type of resurrection, and so do I. 
Paul also believed that what we believe shapes the way that we act. And Paul says if we can get this bit right, then the other pieces fall into place more easily. For Paul, grace and resurrection are inseparable. There was no point for Jesus being resurrected if all he was going to do was to be a figure in history that taught us of how we should live a good life. He'd done enough in his life to be able to do that. But by coming back to life... Jesus opens a way that's free from the punishment reward systems that surround us. And it opens us up to grace. And I also think that grace isn't grace without transformation. Without the link between grace and resurrection, then our undeserved gift becomes nothing more than something like a lucky lottery win. And I'm sure you've heard the stories about how many lotto winners have ended up ruining their relationships and their whole lives because there was no real change. But grace leads to real transformation, has lasting impact and makes an eternal difference and is something that we cannot help but tell others about. This is what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to think about how we can tell our story of grace. The ways that the risen Christ has appeared to us, has transformed our living. How has Jesus appeared to you? In what way has that appearance transformed you? Shape the way that you live. What is it about your experience of Jesus that this community needs to hear and can't live without? How can your experience provide insight to others? Who them themselves can experience good news? How can the difference Christ made in your life be made a real and compelling story for others. The story that Paul shared to the Corinthians and the other early churches did this. Our own stories of life and faith must do the same. There's lots of textbook definitions of grace. I mean, the, the classical one is to use the words of grace and, 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 and God's riches at Christ's expense. But I think the best definition of grace is our lived experience and our story told. On, um, on Friday, um, I won't let you know which one of my children it was, um, but one of them left their lunch at home. And I got a call from school saying that they'd left their lunch from home, at home. So I... Even though I had a tight schedule, I had to go back home, get that lunch, bring it back. And on Friday afternoons, uh, we've got a tradition as a family that we might stop in a a 7-Eleven or a a shop and get a treat. 
And this particular child, as I picked them up from school, said, can we go to a service station and get something? And I said, well, if you were a parent and one of your children left their lunch at home and made you go home and, and miss out on doing important work so that you could have your lunch, do you think that they would deserve a treat? And this child looked kind of sheepish and said, do you remember what I preached on at the Thursday night church? And he said, <laughs> is it grace? Well, we will go and get a treat, and that's grace. I hope he understood that, and I hope that becomes part of his story of what grace is. I hope you've got your own story. And if you don't have your own story of grace, please, I'd love to buy you a beverage of your choice and talk to you about it, and I know there'd be a number of um, people in our church that would love to do that with you. Whenever Christ turns a life around, heals a relationship, transforms a bitter heart, forgives, teaches a fearful person to love, or shows someone how to give, this is a story waiting to be told of God's good news and God's grace, of God's transformation, of God's resurrection. Because the truth is, in the world that we live in right now, those 500 people that were witnesses of the resurrection that Paul talked about to the Corinthians, that the Corinthians could have if they had the funds, have gone and had a visit and asked them face to face, did you see Jesus? Was he really resurrected? I know at least Peter was a visitor to that community. They're long gone. The only real proof of the resurrection today is sitting on our seats here in church, in the churches around the world. You and me, we are living proof of resurrection. We are living proof of grace. But unless we tell our stories, how are people to know what grace and resurrection really is. If we're not telling our stories, our churches will continue to decline. My prayer is that we might boldly proclaim our stories in the actions of our lives and where necessary, find the words to express them that we might be bearers of resurrection and grace, that we might be evidence of real hope that can change the world because it's changed us. Let's pray. Loving God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your real resurrection in my life and in the life of those who are gathered here today. Thank you for your promise that we will be resurrected with you. I thank you that you've made grace to be contagious. 
Help us to do unto others as you have done for us. Amen. Dawn will now continue to lead us in a time of prayer.